Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under your feet, under their feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And our second reading is just one verse. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 34. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I'd ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds, may these give you pleasure, God, you who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. When I was a kid, I didn't wear glasses because, you know, I didn't need glasses. Until I was in high school and apparently not paying very much attention to my teacher. And a friend passed me her pair of glasses to try on and I tried them on. Now, I was sure, you know, I'll put on someone else's glasses and it'll be all blurry and I won't be able to see anything. Except for I put on her glasses and they helped. It turned out I needed glasses, and I didn't know it. I went home and told my mom about it. She took me to the doctor. Turns out I was mildly nearsighted. I needed some glasses. I needed my vision corrected. We can go on in our lives for quite a long time, seeing in a certain way, maybe not even knowing that we need our vision corrected. And yet, I hope that throughout this uh, Unafraid series, we've had an opportunity for our vision to be corrected, to see the world and our lives and our God in a different way, a way that offers us more freedom and joy. Throughout these seven weeks, we've been focusing on unafraid opportunities to be freed from fear. And it's been striking to think about all the fears we can have. You see them up in the graphic. We can be afraid of thunder or missing out or dogs or fireworks or skydiving or public speaking or illness. There's so many different things we can be afraid of. And we've realized if, as we've gone through this study how often fears are really playing in our minds all the time. It's as if we've got fear TV running 24-7 and we get worked up and frightened and anxious all the time. When we talk about these different fears, we are thinking about things that have come to us in different ways. So some of us are afraid because of a particular experience we had. You might be afraid of dogs because you were bitten by a dog, or you're afraid because of something you've been exposed to. Maybe you saw a scary movie and then the situation in that movie kind of took hold in your mind. 
or maybe you've seen reports in the news and hearing that all the time has made you anxious. There are a lot of different reasons why we can feel fearful and a lot of things we can feel afraid of. What's been interesting throughout this season of looking upon fear is there's a term I haven't heard, fear of dogs, fear of crime, fear of whatever. What I haven't heard is fear of the Lord. It's not a phrase we use very much. It's not a concept that I would say many of us embrace. And you may be thinking, okay, we've just spent six weeks talking about how we shouldn't be fearful. Now you're going to tell me I should be afraid of God? Really? <laughs> it seems rather counterintuitive. And yet, I'd like to reflect with you upon this image of the fear of the Lord and see what might be helpful about it, what it might be showing us about who God is and how that awareness of God can strengthen our lives. As I said, fear of the Lord is not a term we use very often. It's not a big sermon focus in the United Methodist Church. But it wasn't all like that and always like that in American Christianity. You might have studied a sermon uh, from our pre-revolutionary days. I remember reading it in school and thinking, oh my heavens, uh, by a famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards. On July 8th, 1741, uh, Jonathan Edwards preached at the First Church of Christ in Enfield, Connecticut, in a, in a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards said this in his sermon, The God who, that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. So would you all like me to switch my preaching style and do that? What if you came week after week? You are all worms and God hates you. In fact, God can't think of anything God would rather do than torture every one of you. We, we hear that and we just think, whoa. I mean, it's horrible. And yet, for a season of American Christianity, that kind of preaching was pretty common. Kind of preaching by terrorizing. And it created images of God as the big scary father in the sky whom we can't possibly placate. And I would say a kind of side effect of that, which I think has been very dangerous for us as Christians, is it in being afraid of this God that we can't please, it created a kind of Christianity of behaving, as if being a Christian is all about behaving and being good enough for God. And then Christianity became about our behavior rather than about a relationship with the living God. That's part of the, the unfortunate um, byproducts of that early Puritan tradition, which argued about the big scary God who hates you and thinks you're a terrible sinner. Adam Hamilton points out, when we read our scriptures, that's not at all how Jesus treated sinners. Jesus didn't talk about how God couldn't wait to torture them or drop them in the fire. Jesus actually was with sinners and invited them to parties, had meals with them. Jesus was not harsh and yelling at people for his ministry. Now, what's interesting is he did occasionally take people to task. Do you know who they generally were? the religious leaders. You want to see Jesus angry? 
Jesus is angry when the religious leaders were hypocrites, when they were so busy being impressive in their devotion. You know, beware of practicing your piety before others to impress other people. Yeah, that made Jesus really angry. People who tried to impress people by how pure and, and uh, worthy they, they were. Or Jesus got angry when the religious leaders would uh, make demands of the people that were too much for them. When the religious leaders oppressed the poor. That made Jesus really angry. When Jesus went to the temple compound and found the money changers who would change the, the outside city coins into the temple coins and they were gouging, uh, they were using gouging exchange rates, that made Jesus so mad he turned over the temple, uh, turned over the tables within the temple. But when you look at what, what made Jesus angry, it was generally abuse of power. It was almost never garden variety sinning. I'm not saying he thought sinning was good. He invited people into repentance. But you don't see Jesus as teaching a bunch of finger pointing, you terrible people who are sinners, Jesus wants, you know, God wants to drop you in the fire. That's, that's not what Jesus' ministry was. So if we know that we have this heritage of uh, very dangerous teaching about the father who wants to drop you in the fire, how do we move forward from that? Well, I would argue that we've moved forward, but in some ways we've gone too far in the other extreme. So on the one extreme, the Jonathan Edwards extreme, you have the sadist God, the father who wants to throw you in the fire. And we've gone, I think, in American Protestantism too far in the other direction. So in the other direction, we have domesticated God. And God becomes kind of our little pocket pal. God is not someone for whom we have reverence. God is a being that we pull out and we kind of pet it and it soothes us. Then we put it back when we don't want it anymore. We t we, in that version of Christianity, Christianity is pretty much all about me. I remember seeing something recently that talked about how you need to know that God has your picture on a magnet on God's fridge. Really? <laughs> Have we become that banal? Do we really think that God has a refrigerator and Jane Easley is the fridge magnet? <laughs> like, <laughs> it, we've gone too far the other extreme into a, a Christianity that's kind of narcissistic. God is all about me. God loves me. What are you going to do for me? I'll pull you out when you can help me. And that's dangerous in a different way. That doesn't call us to a rich and full and risk-taking life. That's a very domesticated God, not recognizing the power of God. So what would be a sense of the fear of God that is healthy? As I reflected upon this, I thought about the Trinity. As Christians, we believe in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Creator Christ and Spirit, however, whatever language we use for that. And I want to reflect upon each person in the Trinity and what each person teaches us about the fear of the Lord. So first, the first person of the Trinity, the Creator, or Father, God, that is the one who made the heavens and the earth. That is the one who made the universe. And it's, it's uh, gratitude for that first person of the Trinity that we experience in Psalm 8. How majestic is your name over all the earth. And 
And maybe the fear of God isn't quite the right word, but we have a sense of awe. We have a sense of awe at God's creations. We think about the heavens. We think about this beautiful universe, and we recognize how big God is and how small we are. Not small as a put down, but small as a sense of proportion of where we belong. Different people have different uh, ways that they connect to that sense of awe of God. So some people, their greatest sense of awe is in stargazing, and they look to the heavens, and they feel how huge the universe is beyond our imagining, and that fills them with awe at the grandeur of God. I've known other people who experience a sense of awe in other, in like natural uh, resources. So we see God in the Grand Canyon, or we see God in a mountain peak. There, God in the intricacies of, of animals and birds. That's another way that people experience a sense of awe toward God. For me, a great sense of awe toward God is the ocean. I'm a water girl. I grew up 45 minutes from the Pacific Ocean, and I love running into the waves and jumping in the waves. But as a little girl running into the waves, I learned early on that the ocean is powerful. And it was, it was easy to get the timing wrong or to underestimate the power of a wave, to go into the waves, and in comes a big wave, and I get slammed down. <laughs> Or in comes, uh, uh, you know, I go into the water and here comes a wave and all of a sudden, whoo, and I'm thrown underneath and the, and the salt water's going up my nose and I come out of the air. <sighs> the waves are powerful. The ocean is not my plaything. <laughs> the ocean does not exist to entertain Jane easily. The ocean is powerful and gives us a sense of God's power and might. And although I don't believe that God delights in throwing us under the waves and roiling us around, it is true that sometimes what God calls us to is a challenge. And sometimes what God calls us to will spin us around and we will have a phase of thinking, oh my heavens, am I going to get out of this alive? God is powerful and mysterious and beyond our domesticated knowing. That's one way of thinking about the fear of the Lord from the first person of the Trinity. What about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus? I've already spoken about how Jesus called out the religious authorities when they took advantage of or abused the poor uh, and the marginalized. What do we see in Jesus' life about fear? I'm struck by how we see so many emotions in Jesus but we never see him hold back from his mission because of fear. He's in crowds of hungry people. He invites his disciples to feed them. He sees a leper. He's not afraid to touch the leper and to heal them. He's not afraid to have a meaningful conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. He's not afraid to talk with the Canaanite woman who wasn't Jewish but still wanted him to heal her daughter. Over and over again in Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus engaging with people fearlessly, even when there might be opposition. We see Jesus not swerving from his mission, even when religious authorities disagreed with him and began to oppose him. And we see him remain true to the course, even 
when the opposition became more intense, when his best friend betrayed him, when he underwent the trial, and as he prepared for his crucifixion, in all that journey, he remained steadfast. He may have felt fear, but he didn't let it deter him from his purpose. So at the end of his life on the cross, into thy hands, God, I commit my spirit. Jesus lived a life of radical trust, and after his death, was raised up from the dead, showing us that love is stronger than death. And Jesus offers that same model to us today. We may feel fear, but it doesn't have to deter us from our purpose. Uh, we can remain strong. And we look at Jesus' life and we marvel at his courage, his willingness to engage with all different kinds of people, and his authenticity no matter what. That was Jesus. And we look at him and we think, I want to be that fearless I want that kind of life. What about fear and the Holy Spirit? We read in the Gospel of John toward the end of Jesus' life that he told his followers, and after I am gone, the Father will send an, adv an advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will remind you of all that I have said to you. And other places that Spirit is referred to as the Comforter. My primary image of the Holy Spirit is as comforter. And when people are bereaved, I pray for the Holy Spirit to bring comfort to their hearts. That's a true and important image of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not just a comforter. Sometimes when Jesus reminds us of what, Je when the Holy Spirit reminds us of what Jesus taught us, sometimes that reminder brings a little suffering because it shows us what we need, how we need to change. I often think of the Holy Spirit as a kind of mirror, a mirror that is put up before me when I need to see attitudes or behaviors that have grown up in me that are not of God. And the mirror is placed before me and I see it and I'm given an opportunity to repent, to be forgiven and to receive new life. John Wesley referred to that as convicting grace, that part of the Holy Spirit's work is to convict us when we're out of line. And so the Holy Spirit can be a comforter, but other times the Holy Spirit is a challenger. Other times the Holy Spirit reminds us of who Jesus is and says, cut it out. Stop being so hard on yourself. Stop being so hard on other people. Stop being whatever it is we're doing that is not life-giving. It's not a shaming. It's not a, I want to drop them in the fire. But it's an invitation to see ourselves whole and to make substantive change through the grace of God. That's the Holy Spirit too. And I have a sense of awe at what the Holy Spirit might teach me, which might be comforting, but might also be challenging to how I am in the world. These different images of how God works through the different parts, or how fear is experienced through the different parts of the Trinity are just one way of reflecting upon who God is in our lives. If you own the book, Unafraid, at the end of it, you'll see a powerful appendix. Adam Hamilton gives a description of a practice called Lectio Divina, which is Latin for divine reading. And it's a way of kind of slow reading of the scriptures, kind of ruminating on them and trusting that God will act in the midst of our prayer and reflections. Hamilton also offers 31 scripture passages to use for that reflection, passages on fear. 
We've got copies of, the, of uh, a description of Lectio Divina and of the scriptures he recommends back on the Connection Center. Linda's also including it in the e-news, but I want to commend that to you as one way of kind of being with God and listening to God around this issue of fear. Hamilton lifts up a quote by a nun, Sister Irene Noel, who said, the fear of the Lord is the knowledge that God is God and I am not. And then she writes later, I am glad that I am not God. It is a comfort to know that we are not God. When we think we are God, we take the world upon our shoulders and we experience a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. We can suffer tremendously thinking everything is under our charge rather than recognizing our proper proportion in the world, that we are human beings treasured by God, but God is in charge, and God is more powerful than we are. To be able to have our sense, our imagery flipped in we belong to God, God does not belong to us. Or to use the phrase we used in our stewardship program back in November, this came out of uh, the United Church of Christ tradition, May you love God enough that you love nothing else too much. May you fear God enough that you need fear nothing at all. Once we get that proper proportion of who we are in the presence of God, the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, as, as the Proverbs say, it's amazing how freed we can feel. It doesn't mean we never feel, feel fearful again. It doesn't mean that these things don't trigger us. Of course they will. But it means that when we have those experiences, we can face our fears with faith. We can examine our assumptions in the light of the facts. We can attack our anxieties with action, and we can our, release our fears to God. We can feel it, and we can let it go. And that is a life of true, true freedom and peace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Mm -hmm.